If you have a copy of your scriptures, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, we will be studying verses 1 through 11. You might have read the book of Romans before, and you know when you read the book of Romans, you are just waiting to get to chapter 8. Chapter 8 is that great chapter of Romans that we just all love so much. When you read the book of Jeremiah, you were just waiting to get to chapter 30. If you look at a graph, you see a lot of doom and gloom, but yet you do see some hope throughout there because Jeremiah is the prophet of hope. But you really see the apex of hope when you come to chapters 30 through 33. They call this the book of comfort or the book of consolation. Because suffering people will no longer get hope through an eyedropper, they will get it through a fire hydrant. This is why we call it the book of comfort. That's going to be a very important illustration for you to understand as we read all of the book of comfort. But you will see hope like a fire hydrant instead of an eyedropper. So let's ask the Lord to bless us as we start our Ascent up to Jeremiah 31 and read this book of comfort. Father, we come before you and we are thankful for the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah. We understand that the book of Jeremiah has 52 chapters, all inspired by the Holy Spirit and profitable for doctrine, for reproof and instruction in righteousness. Your entire word is good for us, O God. And Father, when we read the book of Jeremiah as a whole, we see the beauty of chapters 30 through 33, the hope for suffering people. And Father, we pray that you would speak to us tonight. Be with us throughout the next few weeks as we go through the book of comfort. We pray, O oh God, that you would comfort your people. You would encourage your people. May we walk away assured of our faith and assured of your Son Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 30, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds. And foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And then fear not, 
O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. Thus since the reading of the very words of God. Just like Jeremiah had a secretary, C.S. Lewis, whom we know, also had somewhat of a secretary. His name was Walter Hooper. While he was in the States, he went back to the UK and gathered a lot of the letters from C.S. Lewis. You can go online and it's a PDF, is free. You can read a lot of the letters that C.S. Lewis wrote other people. Now, if the PDF matches, I've read it in PDF, I haven't read it in a book form, but there's over 2,300 pages of letters written from C.S. Lewis to random people. Remember, there was no text messaging in the 50s and 60s, so they'd write a thing called letter. Some of you younger people may not know what that is, but you have a pen and you write and you pay us like $117 for a stamp now, I think. But anyway, you put it in the mail, you send it off, and, and he would write back. And people sent these letters to Mr. Hooper and they collected them and put them together. And oftentimes you'll see a lot of quotes from these letters. He was writing on the 19th of March in 1963 to a lady named Mary Willis. He had written her a few other times. She had wrote to him. She was a Christian lady, loved the Lord, was really encouraged by his books. And they told her she had a terminal disease. She did not have long to live. So she reached out to Mr. Lewis for prayer and encouragement and they started a dialogue. And in one of the letters he said, What is there to be afraid of? You have long attempted, and none of us does more, a Christian life. Your sins are confessed and absolved. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. You'll see that quote often on cards and people will pick that quote up not understanding the context of it. But he's telling this lady with terminal disease, with a terminal disease, that there are better things ahead than anything we leave behind. And what Jeremiah does here in chapters 30 through 33, speaking to people who were going through pain and suffering who were in exile, he is telling them there are better days ahead. You need to look forward because better days are coming to you. Whenever you read Scripture, that should be often where we are looking. Better days ahead. God is going to preserve His people. And if you're taking notes, we're going to see five things. Preservation of the Word. You're going to see that God's going to preserve the Word. The second thing we'll see is preservation of the future. He's going to preserve a future. Third thing we'll see is the preservation of the tribes. You'll see He preserves the tribes. Four is preservation of the King. He's going to preserve the King. And the fifth thing we'll see is preservation of courage. He preserves the Word. Future, tribes, king, and courage. 
And as we look at this preservation of the word, oftentimes when they spoke and they wanted to understand history, it would be oral tradition. Remember, a lot of the people could not read. They didn't have pens and papers as easily as you and I have. And most of the time when you think of oral tradition, you think of the kid's game where this telephone and somebody tells one person and then in the end it's something different. Ha, ha, ha. That's not oral tradition. Oral tradition is more like Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up what? In a sycamore tree. No, an oak tree. No, everyone knows it was a sycamore tree. Everyone knows the song. Every little kid knows it. If they don't, you need to teach your kids about Zacchaeus, that wee little man who climbed up in a sycamore tree. Everyone knows. We don't have to read scripture to know that. But within scripture, we know because we know it's a sycamore tree. That was oral tradition. And sometimes God wanted his truth and his revelation to be secured so much that he tells his prophet to write it down. Sometimes God wants you and I to remember when his prophets write it down, there's a purpose behind it. It's being preserved forever long as we have it. Read with me verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. It's not arbitrary that what Jeremiah has written down that you and I are still reading today. We can assume that Jeremiah wrote down more than just this. Just as Paul wrote some letters that somehow we don't have. But I'll tell you this. What we do have is because God has preserved it. I think we forget the reason he preserves it is the same reason that he preserved the writings of Jeremiah and told him to write it down in the first place. You've got a group of people who were in exile, who were suffering, who were questioning, who were wondering about life, who are questioning, where's God at this moment? How can I make it the next day? How can I make it in the present? Is God really going to save us? Is God going to rescue us? What is going on in life? God said, write it down, because it's a means of grace. I want to give grace to my people. And the way they're going to get grace is they're going to read your letter, Jeremiah. Same thing he tells us today. Do you want grace? Do you want to know more of Christ? Use the same means that God has given his people in exile. Use the same means that God gave Jeremiah. Read the word. I like what Dr. John Piper said. If you want to hear God, the very voice of God, read your Bible out loud. Because this is the word of God. And he's preserving it for our comfort. Not only is he going to preserve the word, but he's also going to preserve the future. Look what he says in verse 3. For behold, the days are coming. Now, if you've read your Bible, you'll know that that word comes up quite a bit. The days are coming in Deuteronomy 31, 1 Samuel, 2 Kings, Psalm, Isaiah. But nowhere is it said more than the book of Jeremiah. If you remember Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 32, 
Jeremiah says the days are coming when what? The valley of slaughter is what this will be called. This land will be called the valley of slaughter. Why? Because God's going to come and slaughter all of you. Jeremiah 9, he says, verse 25, the days are coming when? When no matter who you are, circumcised or uncircumcised, when the Lord visits you, all of you are in big trouble. That's what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 16, 14, behold, the days are coming when no longer will God be known for taking you out of exile in Egypt. He'll be known for sending you to exile because you have sinned. Matter of fact, in chapter 19, he said, Behold, the days are coming when God's going to come and He's going to destroy you. Matter of fact, he continues to say the same thing about destruction in Jeremiah 48, Jeremiah 49, Jeremiah 51. The days are coming, the days are coming. Jeremiah 51, 52. It seems all throughout the book of Jeremiah, the days are coming where God is going to come and bring His judgment little different than you get in, in Jeremiah 30. Now he's going to say this. He's going to say, the days are coming. Look forward. Be excited about the coming of the Lord. He wants them to have faith. Why? I will restore the fortunes of my people. Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers. And they shall take possession of it. He says, look toward the days. Look for better days are coming. I want you to be excited about the coming of the Lord. Why? Because when the Lord comes back, when he sends you back, when the Lord visits you again, he's going to send you back to the land that he promised your forefathers. And what's going to be different? Your heart's going to be a little different. You're going to have eyes of faith. It's no longer going to be about the temple because when they get there and they're told to rebuild it, it looks like a trailer park compared to the first temple. There aren't even walls in the city. There's nothing. It's destroyed. But they have eyes of faith, don't they? See, God is weaning them off the literal presence. He's weaning them off of the Ark of the Covenant. They knew what was in the Holy of Holies. No more was the Ark of the Covenant inside that temple when they get back to the land. No more. He wants their hearts longing for something better than just the land. And he's going to use exile to get that. He wants them to be excited about the days that are coming. Exciting days. I ask the question, are you longing for that day yourself? Or are you just longing for what land you have here? See, for we are in exile too. And God is asking us to look forward with eyes of faith because He's preparing us a future. He's preserved His Word. He's preserved the future. And now we're going to see the preservation of the tribes. And we have to be very careful what we speak about here about the tribes of Israel. As a matter of fact, Calvin will say on this very passage that I'm about to speak on that both Jews and Christians pervert this passage. I'm going to do my best not to upset Calvin. But read verse 4 with me. 
These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Now the reason this is so interesting is because we know that in 1000 BC that King David, that great king, unified all the tribes. All the tribes recognized King David as king. The kingdom was great in those days. Seventy years later, 930 B.C., Solomon's heart starts longing for the gods of all of his wives and all of his concubines. And the kingdom is ripped apart. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. You can count Ephraim and Manasseh, part of Judah. But you see the tribes divided. And you know from reading the scripture, especially 2 Kings, that Assyria came down, destroyed all of the northern ten tribes, and took them into exile. As a matter of fact, you know because you read the book of Chronicles, and you get to chapter 9, and you see there's a missing book among the northern ten tribes. Where's the book of all their ancestors? Where's the book of all their kings and everything that took place? We don't know. Because they were destroyed. They were taken into exile. And here we have Jeremiah saying the people, the ten lost tribes who were gone, and Judah are going to be reunited in the land after the 70 years. What is going on here? Well, you have to read a man called Moses ben Naaman. We call him a Nachmanides. Maybe you've heard of him. Born 1198 A.D. During the medieval period, you have to understand the Hebrew language kind of disappeared for a bit. It was all Latin and all Greek. Hebrew language is about gone. But you had these men who were not Christians, who read a lot of the first temple Judaistic rabbis who were the experts in Hebrew. And Nachmanides was speaking about this one verse. What do we make? Everyone knows that the northern ten tribes disappeared. They were gone. We call them the lost tribes of Israel, do we not? He was reading the Tosfot, which is the St. Augustine, we love St. Augustine. We like St. Augustine, the greatest theologian in the history of the world. Tosfat was the greatest theologian to the Jewish men. Born, or he wrote this in A.D. 32, right at the time when Jesus was around. He says that there were not enough to be termed a tribe in, the tribe in their own right, but yet there were a few from every tribe that returned. Nachmanides would go on and say that only a few hundred return from each tribe as pigeons return to their home. Basically saying that this prophecy is fulfilled because there were a few from every tribe that came back and was assumed under Judah. Nachmanides would say, see, the prophecy was fulfilled because at least 
a hundred from every tribe came back. Now you need to understand the tribes of Israel could intermarry as long as it didn't have to do with land being shifted. They could intermarry. You need to understand that some tribes probably had a different accent. We see Jesus was from Galilee. They could tell he's from Galilee. If you ever think of the UK, if you ever listen to Derek Thomas and Sinclair Ferguson, you can tell one man is a Welshman and you can tell another man's a Scottish man. You know, if you listen to Johnny Gibson, you can tell he's from Northern Ireland. You can tell. You can tell when Ollie comes here, he's from Leeds, England. Right? You can tell he's from England. You can hear the different accents and they could tell the different accents, right, where they were from, but they could intermarry. They were all from their father Jacob and ultimately from their father Abraham. But the northern ten tribes were gone. But yet, this is the problem with Nachmanides. He doesn't believe in Jesus. See, sometimes when you're reading prophecy, especially in Jeremiah 30 through 33, you have to have short-term prophetic answers and long-term prophetic answers. You have to see the short-term prophecy fulfilled and the long-term prophecy fulfilled. Real simple, right? King David, God promised King David, you'll always have a son on your throne. And that was fulfilled, fulfilled. But we know who the ultimate King David is, don't we? That Jesus would reign on the throne forever. The Jewish scholars miss Jesus. And when you miss Jesus, I believe you miss ultimately the long-term prophecy that's taken place in the book of comfort. See, we know that not all who descended from Israel are Israel. It's only the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So short term, maybe you're right, Mr. Nachmanides, and maybe you're right. It was a little bit from every tribe, but ultimately what brings Judah and Israel together is Christ, is the blood of Jesus, who takes the wild olive branch, right? And he grafts us in to that line of Israel. Do not forget the long-term prophetic outlook when you're reading Jeremiah 30 through 33. Oh yes, we must remember there is a context. There is a short-term outlook. There is something that has taken place in the here and now. But oftentimes those prophecies have a long-term outlook. And this is the reason we read in verse 4. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Says the same thing in verses 2 through 3. He's going to restore what? Israel and Judah. That's not completely restored till Christ comes. And then we see that in him all Israel is saved. But let's, let's read verses 5 through 6. Thus says the Lord, We have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? 
you need to remember those who decided to stay in Jerusalem were the ones that were destroyed. The ones that were blessed were the ones that believed in God to do the hard thing and move away. Move under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. It was such a terrible siege that even men were, were, were grabbing their stomachs and they looked like they were in labor. They were so hungry. They were so famished. They were so sick. The siege that took place in 586 when the first temple was destroyed has a lot in common with the second siege that took place in AD 70. Josephus wrote about the second siege. And he spoke about how men would fight like dogs over one little piece of food. He said they would fight over an insect or a rat. They were so hungry. Same thing that takes place in the siege of Babylon. As a matter of fact, he said one lady named Mary moved to Jerusalem so she could be safe from the Romans. And she saw how dismal it was and that her kid was going to be taken. That she killed her kid and ate it. This is how bad the siege was. This is why Jesus Christ said, run to the hills. Get out of there. God tells the same thing to the people in Jerusalem. Get out of there. It's not going to be good when judgment comes to the land. See, God has compassion. And he constantly warns people. And if you really want the simple answer, and if you're listening, kids, listen to God's word. Your life is so much easier when you just listen to God's word. Verse 7, alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. As dreadful as it is, as dreadful as that day will be, Jacob, Israel, ultimately those who are resting in the coming Messiah, resting in the Redeemer, trusting in the promises of God, trusting that Yahweh is a God that saves, they shall be saved out of that dreadful day. And I often think of how many people should really be concerned about that dreadful day. Especially in reform circles, we, we don't speak of that dreadful return day as much as we ought. We leave that to what? People who have a different view of eschatology to us because they write books about it all the time. And we, we oftentimes forget about it. But there's coming a day of reckoning. And the Lord will return. We've seen that God has the preservation of the word, the preservation of the tribes, and the preservation of the future. Now we're going to see the preservation of the king. And I don't know if you've paid attention to plots inside of books recently or movies recently, but there's a plot line that keeps coming up over and over and over again in books and in movies. And it's real simple. A child or a teenager or a wife is kidnapped. And the dad is some type of ex-military CIA, real tough guy, and he's going to go back and he's going to rescue his family, right? 
books and books and books and movies and movies and movies. All the same plot line. Characters have changed, but that is the plot. And some of my favorite things to read or watch is when the person that's been kidnapped, the wife or the son or the daughter, looks at the people and they say, yeah, when my dad gets here, it's going to be bad for you. <laughs> it's not going to be good for you. When my dad shows up, he's going to hurt you. It's not going to be good. This is what you get in verses 8 and 9. The preservation of the king. Don't forget who David was. There's a reason he didn't build the temple. He was not a man of peace. Oftentimes we look down upon that. Well, he didn't get to build the temple. Solomon did. <laughs> but it's great when you're kidnapped, isn't it? It's great when you need him. Look at verse 8. And it shall come to pass in that day, that dreadful day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck. Probably the same yoke that Jeremiah has been speaking about, that Babylonian yoke. I will break his yoke off from your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. Do you remember when Jacob blessed his sons, what he told Judah in Genesis 49? He says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah, there will be a son that comes from your lineage and his hand will be on the neck of his enemies. See, when you've been taken advantage of, when people are persecuting you, you read this a little bit differently. When you're in exile and the Babylonian government is telling you to worship this idol or they're going to burn you to death, you read Jeremiah's letter a little, a little differently, don't you? When someone stabs you in the back or curses you out because you love Jesus and you don't get that promotion... You read this a little bit differently, don't you? You're like, yeah, my dad's coming back, and it's not going to be good for you. When my father returns, he'll make all things right. You need to understand the first thing that the ultimate, and remember, you're looking forward. We understand what's taking place, because we're looking forward, and we know that Jesus Christ is that shoot that comes from the line of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the first thing that he crushes is our own sin. When he went to Calvary and died for our sins, he crushed the enemy. He crushed the head of the serpent and he crushed our sins. He freed us. He puts his hand on the neck of our own sin and releases us from that guilt and the shame and the bondage. But oh, there's coming a judgment day. Once again, when you're reading this, and you've had difficult times, you know that your father's coming back. And it's not going to be good for those who have shamed you, who have taken things from you they shouldn't have taken, who have abused you. He will come back and make it right. Verse 9. 
But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. You know, everyone identifies this, even the Targum, which is the Hebrew-Aramaic translation. They all recognize that this is speaking about the Messiah. I find it fascinating that they totally missed Jesus. You know there was never a king after Zedekiah? Not one king after Zedekiah. Now he was treated kindly, which was just a little down payment, right? The Jews come out of exile, come back into the land. By faith, they build the temple. They build the walls. We can read that in Nehemiah. God even uses Esther to rescue many of them. Never have another king. This passage makes no sense if you don't read it looking at the future. They will serve the Lord their God and David their king. Understand the physical kingdom and all the kings were just a down payment and a foreshadowing of the real king, of the real kingdom. And he's teaching them. He wants them to have eyes of faith and to look forward. We've seen preservation of the word, the tribes, the future, the king, and now let's look at the preservation of courage. If you were a Jew and you were in exile, you would hear the stories of courage, right? You can almost imagine that Daniel got a little bit of courage from maybe Joshua. He knows how Joshua, or maybe from David fighting Goliath, or maybe Abraham going in to rescue Lot. Or maybe they read about Deborah, because Barak sure didn't have any courage, did he? And Deborah rose up and had the courage, or maybe Rahab, by faith, risked her life to make sure the spies were, were not dead, or maybe Yael, remember her, or Jael, she takes the tent peg and she just taps it right in the king's head. Courage, people of courage. You can just imagine how the exiles were looking back thinking, i got to have that type of courage, especially when the Lord asks me to do something, because the Lord's going to ask them to come back to the land. You've got your houses, you got your plots of land, you got your, your crops. Many of these children were born in Babylon. They never knew the land. But yet God's going to call them back. God's going to call them to stand up to the unrighteousness in the land. Be peaceful, warriors, right? Look at verse 10. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid. When you come back, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'll give you leaders. I'll give you a prophet. We'll together build the walls. 
And if you notice, even when they come back to the land, they have these different times in which they struggle, right? And God has to send the prophets to, to get them back on track. If you can't see your life in this, you need to put your life inside of the exiles, as Peter would tell us to do. God is going to send you and, and ask you to do things, and you're going to need courage. You're going to have to remember all the people in the Scripture who trusted in God, and God continue to bless them. And as we heard this morning from Pastor David, verse 11, For I am with you to save you. As he said, it is good that Jesus goes away. Why? Because his spirit is now with us. Jesus says, I'm with you. This is why you shouldn't be afraid, he tells his disciples. Go! Baptize the nation. Share the gospel. I'll be with you until the end of the age. He says, I'm with you to save you. Can you see the forward-looking promises, the eschatological promises that are in this verse? I am with you to save you. All your trials, all your temptations, all the problems are there. Why? Because I'm with you to save you. Be brave. Be courageous. Be courageous. Why? I'm with you to save you, declares the Lord. Look what he's going to do to the enemies. You don't have to fear anyone else but God. God says, I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you. But of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. God wants us to be courageous. He's with us forever. As we close, as C.S. Lewis is writing Mary Willis on June 17, 1963, he lets her know that better days are ahead. He is preparing her for her death as she has a terminal disease. The irony is, if you read that book that Mr. Hooper put together of his letters, you'll realize that you have a lot of letters in June 1963, a lot of letters in July, a lot of letters in August, a lot of letters in September, October, and then you get to November and the letters stop. Miss Willis lived another 12 years. C.S. Lewis was called home that very same year. As a matter of fact, he was called home the same day that JFK was assassinated. And the reality is, is if C.S. Lewis was allowed to come back and he was allowed to share something with us, you know what I believe he'd share? The same exact thing they share with Miss Willis. Better days are coming. Much better days. Day that we will be with Jesus Christ forever. You may not see on this earth. The Lord may not tarry. We may be alive to see God make all wrongs right. That dreaded day for some, but that blessed day for us. But we may have to wait a while. But while we wait, it's going to be a blessed time with our Lord and Savior. And I pray and hope this book of comfort will be as comforting to you 
as it was to the exiles. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word.